It's wonderful to be going through the book of Philippians and learning how to think. Uh, Philippians is such a great book that teaches us how to think. The, the kind of the theme verse for Philippians would be in Romans, actually, where it says, well, let's just turn there. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> let's see what that says. Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So that being the theme verse, we need this mind transformation. Our brains, our minds, we've been trained by the world how to think, and God says they have screwed you up. The world does not know how to operate the mind. Only God does, and he's given us an entire manual on how to operate the brain, the mind. And Philippians just happens to be very clear when it comes to how to operate the mind. So with all that said, we're going to um, dive into where we've gone because we've gone verse by verse. We've been in it for several weeks now, and we get to now to chapter t- 2, verses 12 through 16, and today's sermon is called How to Think about fear and trembling. How to think about fear and trembling. So let's pray and then we'll read the word of God together. Father, we thank you that you love us and have given us your word. We thank you for the grace that you shower on us even when we don't deserve it. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be humble and to, to have faith in what you say. That when we hear your word, we would be believing and tender-hearted and not hold back reservations, but believe you. Lord, because you deserve our trust. You have never done anything untrustworthy. You've never done anything to discount our belief in you. But Lord, you are always faithful. And I pray we would see that and we would surrender to it today. Be with us, Lord. Send us your spirit in your name, Jesus. Amen. We begin in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. We have been talking a lot about humility. In the previous verses here in chapter 2, we saw Paul's instruction to us about how to have a lowly mind, how to not think too highly about yourself and how all that worked. And then he moved on to give us an example of that lowly mind, which was who? Jesus, right. His example of being God, yet he became a man. He took on humanity in addition to his godhood, and he humbled himself, even to the point, it said, of death, death on the cross. So he showed us this lifestyle of humility. And uh, if you would look back at verse 8 real quick, we're just going to reference this verse real quick. Through his great humility, Jesus was able to obey, obey, it's key word, his father in everything. 
And it says in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So our text before us today takes the next logical step, which is our obedience. The next logical step in following Jesus, we learn about a lowly mind, then we see his lowly mind, and now we're going to see how we can obey God as well through this humility, how we can actually obey. Obedience is, uh, is very important, obeying God's commands. There's a, uh, there's a modern view out there that says obe- obeying Jesus' commands is not important. It's actually not modern. It's just repackaged. This has been, ever since the church started, there's been people who have gotten legalistic, who said, you have to follow all these rules, and that's what makes God, ha- God, makes God happy. Well, Paul wrote Galatians to destroy that argument. It is only faith and believing God's word that makes God happy. Then you have the other side, which says, well, you don't have to keep any rules. Just do whatever you want. Sin and sin some more. Drink and smoke and curse and hang out with girls who do. There was a rhyme, some sailor thing. I can't remember what it was off the top of my head. Don't drink, smoke, or Yeah, there you go. There's something like that. There you go. Thank you, Nathan. Always there to back me up. Well, that's called licentiousness. So legalism on this side, licentiousness on this side means I have a license to sin. Licentiousness makes sense. All right. And that that side says, oh, you can do whatever you want. You can you can just do it. And they, they don't take God's commands seriously. Now, if we're not supposed to be legalistic and we're not supposed to be licentious, well, what's the only other option? The only thing the Bible says is in the middle, and it's, it's, not, it's not a little more of this one or a little more of this one. It's actually totally opposite of both of them. It's look to Jesus and walk in the Spirit. That is what the Bible teaches is how we don't have laws, but also don't do whatever we want. It changes our heart. When you walk with Jesus and look to Jesus, you fall in love with him, and then it's natural for you to do the things that he desires. It's like getting married or falling in love. You want to hang out with your love, not because it's the rule, but because you love them. And that's how God's whole deal of the gospel is centered on love. So that's how it works. We've all met that, that person or that believer, a person who says they're a believer, and yet they live like a pagan. They're dis- it's, it's disgusting to us. It's repulsive. And we reject those type of people as hypocrites and false believers. And unfortunately, those are the people that a lot of people outside the church look inside and they say, look at all the hypocrites. And we're like, I know, look at all the hypocrites. This, is, this church thing is, is tough. But we love them and we teach them the truth of the word of God. All right? So here's the big question. How do we obey all that God commands? How do we obey all that God commands? Well, what does God? I mean, is that really that hard? Is it really that hard to to do all that God wants you to do? Well, as you study what's called the Old Covenant, which is the Ten Commandments, which is what most people associate as being Christianity. Oh, what does it mean to be a Christian? Oh, you follow the Ten Commandments. No. No. I mean, that's what legalistic people do. But that is not what it means to be a Christian. 
the old the Ten Commandments were given by God, and they're perfect. They're great at doing what they are designed to do, which is to tell you how bad you are. Has anyone ever read the Ten Commandments and been like, all right, I got it? No. If you're honest at all, you say, I am in trouble. I am not doing well. I've broken just about all of these. If not all of them, people just don't know all of them that I've broken. <laughs> but the Ten Commandments, if I were to summarize them, they, they give us requirements to obey the Lord at all times with the whole heart, externally and internally. That's why when Jesus came on the scene, the first thing he did is the Sermon on the Mount, which is not a teaching about grace. The Sermon on the Mount is a teaching about the law. He says, you've heard it say to you, don't commit adultery. And all the people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know the law. And he said, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman, you've committed adultery in the heart. So in other words, the law is not just about whether you've done the deed. The law applies to even the intentions of the heart. So the law is super good at showing you how terrible you are. The law is excellent at being a sword that cuts your heart open and says you're a failure. You fall short of the glory of God. Now, why would God make such a thing? Why would God create such a thing as the law to be a tool to destroy us, to break us down because he has another plan. There's a new covenant. Being a Christian is not about this whole law. The law shows you your need for a savior. The law is so good at showing me that I don't have it figured out. I need a savior. The law says you can't pick and choose what to obey. You're bound in chains to this old covenant. You have to truly obey every single one of God's rules. No big deal. Just be like God in every way, in every moment of your life, inside and out. That's the requirement of the law. And then it says, only people who keep the law 100% of the time, their entire life, from their birth to their death, get to go to heaven. That doesn't mean good things for me. And I don't think for you either. And I'm so grateful that God has another plan of salvation. The law exists, and if you did keep the law perfectly, God would welcome you into heaven with a red carpet, and, and he would sing your praises because you are worthy. But no man is worthy. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How hard do you have to try to be exactly like Jesus? Ooh. The law is not saying, clean up your act and try a little harder. That nowhere in the law does it say that. The law says, do this or die. No try harder. No, oh, you did your best. Let me come alongside now and help you out. The law says none of that. The law is so clear when it says, total obedience all the time. Israel tried their best. And failed. The disciples, you know, tried their best. 
but they failed. And I have tried my best and failed. But the new covenant of grace, it provides for this thing called obedience, which we're learning about today. Obedience. When Jesus came, he started a new way for us to follow. It's, it's a new way or a new covenant. And what it is, it's the actual life of Jesus who had no problem keeping the law because the law is just a really description of Jesus. He's God. The law is just a description of God's character. And so Jesus had no problem keeping the law. He never once thought, oh, I'm going to break the law because that would be him being something other than he was. And so the new covenant, we get the actual life of Jesus given to us freely in a new and practical way to obey God in everything or simply called grace. We walk in grace. It's God's power to live a godly life. To live a godly life. It's a gift from the Father. That's what grace means. It's a gift. You don't earn grace. It's a gift by the Spirit, through the Son, all parts of the Trinity involved. It's awesome. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard for this idea is that of a new car. When you get saved, when you come to know Jesus, you decide, you know what? I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Jesus, will you come and save me? Jesus gives you a brand new car. Brand new car, shiny. What's your favorite car? Someone shout it out. Honda Civic. Who said Honda Civic? Uh, <laughs> standards are low. All right. We'll, we'll say a Ferrari. <laughs> or something like that. All right, so God gives you this bread, and this is your new life in Christ, this new car. And we get this car, it's just right in front of us. God's like, here you go. I've given it to you, this million-dollar car. It's so wonderful. I've paid the whole bill, paid off. It belongs to you. And you're like, oh, so good. I want to tell all my friends. So the next morning you get up and you, you get your clothes on, you get all dressed up, and then you go out to your garage and you're like, all right, here we go. You start pushing that car out into the driveway. You turn it around. Oh, so hard. Oh, my gosh. Whew. Then you, you push it down the street. You push it. You're pushing, you're trying, your efforts and all of it, everything you got, you get, and you finally get down to your, your brother's house, you know, and you're like, oh, whew, following Jesus is hard. And this brother, who's been saved a little bit longer than you, he says, oh, I saw you out there pushing your car. Why are you doing that? Well, I, I don't know any other way. This is all I know. It's this big, beautiful car. I need, to, I need to push it where it needs to go. And, and he's like, hey, I, I love you, brother, so much. I don't want you to have to hurt like this. I don't want you to, to work this hard. You don't know what God has given you. You don't know what God has given you. I want to take you and show you something. So he takes you around this beautiful car. He opens up the hood and he says, look at this. This is is an engine, and it is powerful. How powerful? You have no idea. You have no idea. And, and you, you're like, hmm, an engine. I never heard of such a thing. 
wow, this is amazing. So he says, now I want, I want to show you something else. Here is called a key. I want you to take this key, and I want you to put it in this little hole and turn it. And when you do that, you're going to hear things, and you're going to experience things that are going to take you places. You're going to go places without trying. The engine is the Holy Spirit. It's the power that powers the life given to a Christian. Please don't push around your car. The key is humility. And the act of taking the key and plugging it in and turning it is faith. You've got to trust that that engine is going to do what God said it would do. You've got to believe it. That's the faith part. But the part where you say, I will take the key, that's humility. The part where you say, I'm done with my efforts. I'm done pushing this car around. That is the point of real growth in a Christian. That's what we're learning about today where we go from pushing around our car to cruising around and going places and serving the Lord, doing all his will without even a thought. Just like, hey, I just love the Lord, and he has filled me with a power to do his will. So let's now look at our text, and we're going to break it down piece by piece, and we're going to see how this is exactly what Paul is teaching us. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now this links us back to what we studied last week, the word obeyed, because he just spoke about Jesus obeying. And so now, verse 8, look back at verse 8 again. He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So it links those two. And as he was talking about obedience and how obedience is going to happen in your life, how you're going to run this car. And Paul tells the Philippians two very important words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this can be a really confusing verse if you do not understand grace. Because our natural tendency is to look at this verse and it says, work on your salvation. And that is not what it says. It does not say work on, does it? It doesn't. It says work out your salvation. Work out describes the process of surrendering to God's new covenant of grace. It describes a process. You're working it out. Oh, God's given me this car. And then you have a brother who helps you work it out. And he shows you the engine. And then you take the key and you put it in. And that whole process is working it out. Working it out. It's the process of letting God's power, his Holy Spirit, take over your life. Take over your life. Giving control. I'm done pushing. I'm going to drive. I'm going to let you power. And I'm going to take the seat and sit and rest. Work out 
does not mean add your works to your salvation. Workout does not mean add your works to your salvation. Workout does not mean add your works to your salvation. Workout does not mean add your works to your salvation. One more time. Workout does not mean add your works to your salvation. Your salvation has already been given to you. Workout is simply the process of embracing it, learning about it, and driving around in it. Walking in it, surrendering to it. Jesus has already given you all victory and provided all you need to obey God's commands. He's given it to you. If he wanted you to work on it, he would have kept the old covenant because that one had a lot of work. And you feel good when you do some work, put some work in, right? But that is not how it works being a Christian. We never put work in to being a Christian. No, we don't do that. Jesus did all the work and then he said, it is finished. He didn't say, wow, I got a good start going. All right, guys, give me your best efforts. He didn't do that. He said, it is finished. So workout is how we start the engine of grace and see and experience the power that has been given to us. We take that key by humility and faith, F and H, right, BK? All right. And then he says here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is the really cool part, with fear and trembling. We're going we're gonna to camp here on these couple words, with fear and trembling. We're going to see what this means. Paul already told us what lowliness of mind was, emptying yourself out, like emptying a gas tank of all of your selfish thoughts and ambitions, just whatever you got going on, your own dreams about how your life should be, your own thoughts about what you should do, the American dream, get rid of all that, empty yourself to a, I am just an empty vessel for God. That's what lowliness of mind is. Then he showed us what lowliness of mind looked like through Jesus. Jesus emptied himself and became obedient. So now he is going to command us to do it. And he shows us how to do it. He described this life lived with humility or emptiness, loneliness. He describes it as this, with fear and trembling. That's what it looks like from the outside. Hey, you live in your life with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? English makes us think that that means, I worry about trusting God. Is he going to be faithful? Oh, my life, I got to worry about everything. Oh my goodness, what is going on? I don't trust, I don't... Know what's going to happen. That's not what this means. That is not what this means. So we're going to, I'm going to teach you some Greek. And then we're going to look at how the Bible defines it. So the Greek word for trembling in this phrase, fear and trembling, is tromos. Everyone say tromos. There you go. You're learning so much Greek at this church. I love it. Now, in the Strong's Concordance, it has a great dictionary. And if you would look up the definition of this, it says, with fear and trembling, used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability completely to meet the, all the requirements. That's humility. 
but religiously does the requirements in faith. Wow. Humility and faith. Boom. Right there. Blew my mind as I studied that this week. One who has anxiety over his own distrust and his ability to, to completely obey. He, he knows he cannot obey God. He knows, I cannot do the will of God. Have you ever had that thought that said, I am done. I cannot do this anymore. Great. That's exactly where we need to get to. But there's a second half to it. The second half is although we distrust ourselves completely and it causes us anxiety saying, I can't do this. Yet, we place our faith in his power, as we're going to see, and we trust his power so we step out to do the things we know we can't do. It's just like the scene in Indiana Jones. It's exactly like the scene where there's the invisible bridge and he hears the thing and he knows he's got to do it, but it's this anxiety that Indiana felt when he's like, oh, and, he has to, and it's invisible. He can't see it, but he has to trust it. He has to, and that anxiety is this fear and trembling. Perfect illustration. Just came to me for free. So that's the, the dictionary definition of it. Beautiful, loving, that's all we need. But let's see how the Word of God defines it for us. Now, this is really cool. I looked up all the places where fear and trembling and this word tromos in Greek is used in the Bible, and we're going to look at every single one of them. It's only five. So hang with me. You guys good to dig, take five shovelfuls? Oh, man, this is going to rock you. It's awesome. Check this out. First, we're going to start in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that it teaches us the same truth about fear and trembling. In Psalm 2, 11. Psalm 2, 11. It says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fear and trembling. I found it. I see it right there. What he's saying is the only way to be obedient or to serve the Lord is to truly worship him with fear and trembling. So with, with a real and deep knowledge of your own lack of sufficiency, we can't be afraid of how weak we are. We have to embrace that. This world wants you to think a lot of yourself. Oh, you can do it. Thank you for getting my Adam Sandler reference. But this world wants you to think that. But that is pride, and it is rebellion against God. It's sourced from Satan. That is not what God has for us. God has created us as dependent things. He never intended us for it to be independent men, Americans. Rawr, rawr, give me a belt buckle. No. He says, you are made to worship me, to serve me. That's your whole purpose in life. You want to rebel against that? Go ahead. You go to hell. It's the only other place I made. It's the only option. But if you would like to serve me, great, let's do it. And he says the way to do it is with fear and trembling, with a real deep knowledge of your own lack of sufficiency. We need to be terrified of the fact that we can't serve God. Good enough. 
that needs to create in us this, ah, how am I going to do this? We need to understand the total brokenness that we live in. And it's something that will really make you happy. What? Well, 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 worldly psychology, they teach me that if I, if I acknowledge all my brokenness and, and weakness, that I'm just playing into, well, la, 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 and, I'm, and I got all this stuff going on that, that is going to keep me down. But God says, no, 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 no. When you acknowledge brokenness, when you embrace weakness, it will make you happy. He says, rejoice with trembling. It's so freeing to be able to freely confess your weakness to God, saying, I can't do that. My wife is crazy, and you want me to love her? My boss is an idiot, and you want me to submit to him? My children are awful, and you want me to love them? No, 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 you must, you must. The standards must be different. I, I must. No, those, that's God's law. That's God's commands. We can't get out of it. We can't weasel our way or interpret them another way. No. And it's so freeing to say, I can't do that. This challenge is beyond me. I don't have it in me. It's a wonderful, saying that, it's a wonderful door to be able to receive all that God wants to give you. How cool is this? Turn to Ephesians 6.5. Ephesians 6, 5. Because sometimes I'm tired. I have no ability to get up and preach. I have no ability to serve my six strapping boys with all their energy and rebellion. And it's such a joy to confess to the Lord, I can't do this. And then I know that he will supply what I am unable to do by his grace because that's the promise of his word. That's the promise of the new covenant, which we're learning about. That's his promise. This is how we serve and love men too. You know, to serve the Lord, it's, it's tough. We can acknowledge, I can't serve you. But even other men, you know, the Ten Commandments taught us not just how we treat God but also how to treat men. It's divided into two tablets, two sections, one through four with God, six through ten, or five through ten with men. It, it's practical living too. And look at Ephesians 6, 5. Bond servants, this is employees for our vernacular, our world. Be obedient to those who are your masters or bosses, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, he says, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. So the same way that we have this distrust of ourself in, in honoring God, he says it should be practical too in your living, your, your practical life, your, your job. Humility, he's saying, has to be a lifestyle, not just with God, but with men also. And the grace of God will empower you to obey your bosses just like it's obeying God's commands. Now, obviously, if your boss tells you to sin, you don't do that. But if he tells you, tells you to clean up the bathroom, you better do it. This teaching, okay, when Christianity spreads through the world and they get to this portion of Scripture and we teach it, it creates better employees for the country, for the world. And the world loves it when the gospel invades their world and people start following Christ. Why? Because it makes wonderful employees. And are they going to take advantage of you? Maybe. Sure, 
But what's going to happen eventually? God will rip their heart out and they will see love and they will be like, fall on their knees before you and say, what must I do to be saved? I treat you like a jerk all day long and you never even respond to me. You are supernatural in your ability to honor me. And I have a hunch it's from your religion, your relationship with God, your love for God. How does this happen? Tell me and I'll follow you. This is how we wage warfare, by love, not by arguing with our boss about who, how to get saved or what's the right way to run their company. Submit in love. All right. Ten people will probably won't come back next week, but that's cool. <clears throat> All right. We are unable to really honor God if, in our work if we don't have a fear and trembling about our own abilities. If you think you can do your job with no help from God, what you accomplish in your work is going to be tainted by the flesh and unacceptable to God. You're really working for God. No matter what your job is, you're really serving the Lord. And so if you do that in your own effort, you taint it with flesh. And he can't have that. It's going to be worthless at the end. There's a power when we surrender to the new covenant, God's new way of doing things. When we humble ourselves and renounce every dependency on the flesh, we are given a spiritual power that enables obedience. It's easy to look like Jesus when Jesus is just living in your heart. So you come up to me and you say, I just don't want to be at my work. I don't want to be in my marriage anymore. It's too hard. It's too difficult. I am not going to tell you, okay, dishonor God and go get a divorce. I'm going to say, submit yourself to God. He will empower you. Take a step of faith to do what's right. And you'll see God come through for you in amazing ways. Let's look now at 1 Corinthians. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The neat verse that we're going to see real quick. Again, we're exploring all these times when God uses the phrase fear and trembling. This is a neat one. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 2 through 5. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul says, I, I didn't come to you thinking I was the smartest guy in the world. I didn't come to you with great arguments and degrees of, uh, you know, behind me, backing me up, telling you I was really smart. I came to you with one thing. All I said I know is Jesus Christ died and he rose from the dead. And it's so awesome. So great. That's all that I care about. That's all I know. Now let me explain it to you. Now verse 3. And I was with you in weakness. That's what Paul looked like when he was preaching the gospel. Weakness. In fear and much trembling. Tromos in the Greek. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. I didn't argue you into the kingdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. 
that your faith should not be in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here we see this connection between faith and humility. Paul says, I determined to know nothing except Jesus. All I depended on or knew was that Jesus, who Jesus is and what he did for me. That's all he depended on. And now what did that look like? When someone says, oh, I'm just all about Jesus, that's all I am, what is that supposed to look like? It was weakness. Weakness. If you want to believe all that Jesus is and all that he does, what's it going to look like in your life? Weakness. You're going to be constantly confessing, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do the other, I have nothing inside me that can accomplish anything. Well, you sound weak, brother. Perfect. Perfect. That's where we want to be because, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. It's a big deal to not trust in yourself at all. It's going against all that we learned in elementary school with cartoons and everything. You can do what you can trust in yourself, blah, 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 blah. Satan. <laughs> That's what it is. He controls our school systems. He controls worldly psychology. And he's trying to get us to trust in ourselves. And God says, that's the whole war. Stop it. Stop trusting in yourself. To actually fear trusting yourself is what this word tromos means. I, I will not trust in myself. Oh, you can do You can hang out alone with that person of the opposite sex when you're married or unmarried. You can be alone at night in a dark movie and you are strong. No, you're not. You might not mess up the first time, but you're going to mess up. Why? Because you're a person, a human being who is weak and you have a flesh that is insatiable. And only when we confess that Know our weakness. Can God fill us? That's how we empty the tank. It's so he can fill us with his love. It looks like weakness, but check this out. The result of his weak living was not weakness. The result was power. A powerful ministry. Not his power. But God put his spirit in him and had his hand on him. And God changed millions of things in Paul's life. He let Paul's weak words be turned into mighty swords cutting into the hearts of all kinds of people. They could not stand against his wisdom that God made powerful. This is how we become a powerful church. Weakness. God's not looking for commandos he's looking for broken humble vessels which is good news because we all would be terrible none of us look like Arnold spiritually or mentally or physically we are not superheroes but that's fine because God is and God gives it to us through the power. He says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul's humility, Paul's humility caused these people around him to grow in faith. When we grow in faith, 
It's because we see the Spirit's power given to those people with humility in our life. Man, that, that encourages me to follow Jesus more than anything else. Is when I see someone humble themselves before God and then God come through for them, I'm like, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. Now, I can't be the man of all this abilities and faith and all, but I could humble myself because all I got to do is drop to my knees and beg God for mercy and grace. I can do that. Why do you think God set the system up this way? Because he wants all of us to access his love and grace. And he needed it to not be dependent on how good you were or how talented you were because then people with mental handicaps would be behind, behind us, right? But that's not true. They get a step ahead because they're already humble, dependent. They're wonderful at living in dependence. They're blessed. Man, mm, preach. But we can't see it, we can't experience it if we don't live with fear and trembling. Total dependency on God's grace is a must for us. We cannot depend on our own abilities in any way. Paul says uh, he showed them how to do this practical humility and this practical living, and Paul knows how it works. So turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the next book over, a couple pages. Paul says he couldn't trust in his own plans because they might not work. He's just a man. He doesn't know the future. He can't have confidence. He can, though, have confidence in this system of grace uh, that's called the new covenant. It will work. It does work. It's a guarantee. You can live a life that honors God. And do not listen to preachers who say it doesn't matter if you live a life that honors God because that's a lie. You must honor God. If you've been bought and saved, you must honor God. How do we do it? I'm teaching you. Fear and trembling. All things are possible through what? Christ. How do I access that? Fear and trembling. Humility and faith. We're going to see here in this verse in 2 Corinthians 7, 14 through 16, that humility brings confidence. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as... Um, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all and how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. In this verse, in this section, we see that Paul is able to be extremely confident about these people that he's never even met that they're going to obey the Lord and serve him because he has this evidence. He has this proof. And what is his proof? Fear and trembling. He says, if I see, if I just see, hear that someone lives with fear and trembling before God, I know, I have confidence that they're going to be honoring God and obeying God. This is the confidence of the new covenant. Now, can you depend on yourselves for such obedience? No. You don't know if you're going to do good. You don't know if you're going to make the right decision when push comes to shove. But I can have confidence in you if I even see or hear about fear and trembling. I can have confidence that you will do what honors God. Oh, spider, right there. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> 
multitasking pastor. I guard you from the attacks of the enemy. That's right. Ah. Oh. Okay. Awesome. For those of you at home, he said, was that trembling? Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Real life app. Thank you, Jesus. All right. So now we've looked at every place in the Bible where, where the word trembling is used. Except one. And this one's the best. I saved it for last. Turn to Mark 16. And this one involves an entire chapter. So we're going to see what this chapter says. You're getting your money's worth today. Not that I'm asking you for money. Good Lord. Do not misinterpret that. All right. Look at Mark 16. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? All right? So Jesus has died. These girls love Jesus. They want to go do something that honors Jesus because they love him. They know it's the right thing to do. But what happens is they know, even on the way there, they're keenly aware of their insufficiency for a task. Who will roll away the stone for us, they say. They know already they can't do it, right? Now, verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. How good is God? Yes, you are insufficient for the task that doesn't exist anymore. For it was very large. You couldn't have done it if you tried. You could not do it. You cannot follow Jesus in your own strength. Stop trying. Embrace his love. Well, let's look. I'm getting so off on this. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter and he, that he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb. For they trembled and they were amazed. Oh, trembled? Trembled. That's the word tromos. But it says, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were amazed, afraid. Wow. Here, Mary was afraid at the empty tomb. The empty tomb. This angel gives her a command on how to serve the Lord, what the next step is, what, what she's required to do. The law, you could say. Here's what you need to do, Mary. But she was afraid at the empty tomb. Maybe because it reminded her of the emptiness of her life. The emptiness of her 
abilities, that her abilities were as zero as this tomb was. She was unable to speak. She was unable to serve. She was unable to do what she knew she should do. She was silent. Mary Magdalene. But the good thing is, she trembled. She trembled. She acknowledges her, her emptiness. She's not hiding it from the Lord, and she doesn't go out to do God's will in her own strength. She just trembled. So what do you think God is going to do to the person who trembles? When his child is keenly aware of their weakness, what is God's heart for them? What is he always going to do? He's going to show up. And that's what he's going to do for you too. Look at the next verse. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast the seven demons. So Mary goes there, first day of the week, right? But then the author shifts his attention to Jesus, and he says, you know what the first thing Jesus did was? Showed up to Mary. So Mary has this experience. She feels the weakness. She feels the trembling. And God doesn't let her go a morning without rushing to meet her. He's like, Peter can wait. You tremble. And so you get my first attention. You get all of my power given to you right away. That's what happened here. Jesus' appearance is what gives her what she needs to obey, his power, his presence. When Jesus shows up and she sees him, she's filled with his power and grace to do his will. No matter what she used to be. It mentions what she used to be, right? She used to be filled with seven demons. Well, you might have been filled with 7,000 demons. It don't matter. God cannot leave a trembling child alone. Could you? He will appear. He will give his grace. And you will be empowered to do God's will. Look at the next verse. So she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So all these guys are just, losers and this and they don't know what's going on and they're just and she comes and she's able to minister to them and serve them and give them truth because she's empowered to do so she was afraid before now she's able to speak now she's serving the lord now she's doing the will of god and it's just second nature to her it's her heart's desire her heart is not ruled by fear anymore it's ruled by love and the will of god it's so easy for her now you guys, he appeared to me. That's how easy it is to be used by God in this world. Hey, God loves me, and he's appeared to me. Can I tell you about it? Simple as that, gang. You want to be used? That's how. Look at now verse 11. This is crazy. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Because they're the disciples. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked in the country. So Jesus appears to them, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe 
those who had seen him after he had risen. So Jesus does the same thing with two other brothers as did to Mary. He appears to them. He empowers them. And the 11 disciples needed to learn this important lesson. The power you need is not in you. It's in a real relationship with me. I have to appear to you. It's important. And the only one that can keep you from that, from me, is your unbelief and your hardness of heart. I'll appear to anyone who wants me to. I will appear. You're the only one that won't let me through unbelief and hardness of heart. But they learned that lesson. They chose to renounce self and to trust Jesus, and this is what followed. Power. Look at the next verse. And then he said to them, Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And, when they, and then they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them, and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So what followed this personal connection with Jesus was power. This trembling first and then power second, so important for us to see. Now look back at our text, okay? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God's power now works in you, Paul says. Both to will, that's what you want to do, and to do, that's what you actually do do. I'm so immature. <laughs> and he works these things out for his good pleasure. So now God takes the responsibility for your desires and your actions. And you thought you were in charge. No, you turn your life over to him. You give your life to him. He takes responsibility. So why do you let Satan condemn you when you sin? No. Believe the words of the Lord. Turn and trust him and say, Lord, I, I, I obviously thought that I could do this on my own because I didn't experience your power. I sinned because I wasn't trusting in you. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to distrust myself and I'm going to trust you and you alone. I'm going to bow down before you. I'm going to worship you and spend time with you and ask you for your Holy Spirit. And now I'll move forward believing that you'll do this verse. This is his promise. I will work in you to will and to do of my good pleasure. I'll do what I want in you. That's the beauty of the new covenant. Not what we will, but what he wills. And what does he want? He wants you to succeed. Some, or so many people can't figure out why they keep sinning, why they keep falling in the same spot over, and the only answer, there's only one answer. You have chosen to believe you can do it apart from God. 
There is only one answer, apart from grace. You are not that person. When you got saved, God replaced your innards with his. That is not you anymore. And we got to believe it. He is not to blame for our weakness. He, however, is totally, completely reliable to work in you new desires and actions that honor God when you humbly trust him. I'm going to read you Andrew Murray quote, Andrew Murray quote, Andrew Murray quote. All right. We've had some fun times here. So this is the way Andrew Murray puts it. The cause of the weakness of your Christian life is that you want to work it out partly and let God help you. And that cannot be. You must come to be utterly helpless to let God work, and God will work gloriously. It is this that we need if we are indeed to be workers for God. I could go through scripture and prove to you how Moses, when he led out of Israel out of Egypt, and how Joshua, when he brought them into the land of Canaan, and how all God's servants in the Old Testament counted on the omnipotence of God doing impossible things. And this God lives today. This is the God that lives in every one of his children. And yet, we are some of us wanting God to give us a little help while we do our best. Instead of coming to understand what God wants and to say, I can do nothing. God must and will do all. Have you said? In worship. In work, in sanctification, in obedience to God, I can do nothing of myself. And so I must place in his hands my life. I must trust his omnipotence and worship him alone and believe that he will work in me in every moment. Have you done that? Oh, that God teach us this. Oh, that God would by his grace show you what a God you have. And to what a God you have entrusted yourself to. An omnipotent God, willing with his whole omnipotence to place himself at the disposal of every child of his. So can we not learn the lesson that Jesus says, with, um, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You can live a godly life. So speaking of impossible, look at what Paul says next in our text. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That's impossible. That you may become blameless. Psh, blameless me? That's impossible. And harmless. And I hurt people all the time, even if I don't mean to. Children of God, without fault. That's not me. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not labored or ran in vain. Paul says that this is what our church does. This is what our team is about. Supernatural abilities to resist selfishness and sin. Do all things without complaining or disputing. Why do we complain about stuff? Because we don't fully trust God. Period. The Christians in China do not complain about their government. Done. 
And yet, oh gosh. And they're seeing revival with millions of people getting saved. And all we do is complain about our government. I'm convinced that we need to stop complaining about how corrupt our government and politicians are and start praying in our closets that we can obtain power from the Holy Spirit to love and boldly preach to our neighbors. He says we need to become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault. Well, that's a huge ministry to the world. He says shine as lights in this world. That, that's a huge ministry. You want to do what's right? You want to be used in this world? Spend time with him. Fear and trembling. He says, abiding in Christ. Holding fast to the word of life. How does all this happen? Abiding in Christ. Holding fast to the word of life. And then he says, everything we do matters. So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Everything we do matters then. Your life matters. This, our church, what we do matters more than everything else. All these office buildings and all the stuff that they do. This is the most important thing happening in this entire square mile all week long. Serving God. This is how to think about fear and trembling. Do not trust in yourself. Embrace the brutal truth that you are not able to do it and watch Jesus then show up for you. And then you can do it. Abide in his word. Step out in boldness to honor him and to do his will. But never leave behind that attitude of humility. You have not because you ask not, Jesus said. And you don't ask because you're prideful. Let's stand in fear and trembling at the great grace of Jesus Christ and let's just ask him. Oh, we've gone so long today. I'm so proud of you guys for just hanging in there and trusting the Lord and, and hearing his word today. Let's all stand to give him thanks one last time. It's important that everyone knows that today is the day that you can get saved. Today is the day that you can be right with God. If you're not right, if you have never trusted the Lord and, and received him as your savior and, and received his Holy Spirit, you can do that today. It is offered to you today, but you might get in a car wreck in the parking lot. Norm is a crazy driver and you may die. And if you die without surrendering to Jesus Christ, his way of salvation, you will go to hell. There is only one way to, to heaven, and that is our Father's gracious love and His Son, who He has given on the cross. And so right now is your time to say, Jesus, I need you. I am a sinner, and I believe, I believe that you died on the cross as the substitute for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead, showing that God accepted your sacrifice. I believe that you love me. And even though I'm a sinner, which I confess it all to you now, Lord, I believe that you love me and that you can forgive me. I want to live a life that honors God, so give me your Holy Spirit. I want to live with fear and trembling all my life to honor the great God who saves me and loves me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.